I have a, a systematic theology professor, or had in seminary, who's a, a dear mentor of mine, and actually go visit him once a year up in North Carolina, make a, on an annual pilgrimage to see, to see him. And he wrote a book called, which is his best-selling book. He's written many. He just, he's just finishing his volume three of his systematic theology now. But, uh, he wrote a book called If God Already Knows Why Pray. And it's, the, like I said, it's his best-selling book. And the reason behind it is that he would go, when he was younger, he would go all over the place to speak and to preach and to fill pulpits and to do conferences at, mainly at Reformed Presbyterian churches, typically in the South. And he found over and over again that he, they would go to, he would go to prayer meetings. So wherever he is, he will always worship on a Sunday morning. And if there's a place to worship on a Sunday night as well, he'll do that, worship twice on a Sunday, and then he'll go find a midweek prayer meeting. So he'd always, if he was in town, go to the midweek prayer meeting of his, these different congregations, Bible-believing, uh, robust Reformed theology. But what he'd find is that a lot of these believers would ask a variety of uh, sort of different forms of the question, if God already knows, Dr. Kelly, why pray? And and I think I'm filling in the story a bit here, but I think that he he found sometimes these prayer meetings were sparsely attended, and that was the one one of the reasons why because people had this functional theology of believing that look God's totally in control, which is absolutely true. Um, God's totally in control, so why why pray? It's it's not going to change anything. God's going to do what God's going to do, and so he wrote the book. If God already knows, why pray? And it's a wonderful very helpful book. In fact, um, a man, a member of our church that I'm mentoring and in a D group with now um, was, he texted when I was up seeing Dr. Kelly about a month ago, he, he texted me a picture of, of a book. He said, I'm reading this book right now. It's really good. And he, I, he didn't know that I was with the author at the time. So I just showed the, I showed the, <laughs> I showed the photo to Dr. Kelly and, and we took a picture of each other hugging each other's necks and send it to my friend. So he was tickled at that. And so was Dr. Kelly. But um, so it, the point, it, the reason I bring up that story at the beginning of this sermon on uh, this little message here on Acts 23, 12 through 35, that finishes out the chapter, Acts 23, is that, which is really, it's really a text on, it's a text on Paul essentially being transferred. Okay. It, not a whole lot happens. I mean, the next, uh, he was lynched and beaten and gives a speech right before this, and then after this, he uh, he goes before Felix the governor, and um, that's our text for this Sunday. And he's it's a pretty there's, it's chock full of all sorts of good stuff as he as he enunciates the gospel to Felix and is misrepresented by by a man an orator and attorney named Tertullus. But here in the middle, he's just being transferred. Our, our text is Paul getting moved from one place to another, from Jerusalem to to Caesarea. Which is on the coast, and I, I've been to I've been to both. And Caesarea is a beautiful. Well, the ruins, even the ruins, are beautiful. But I, I, I imagine it was quite beautiful um, back in the day in the capital of Judea, or the the provincial capital, I should say, of Judea, and uh, where the governor therefore was staying in a palace that was built by Herod the Great previously. Um, it's a seaside town. It's a res- it was a resort town. It was a capital. It was a great place. But he gets transferred. That's that's the story. He gets transferred. So, but it's, it's really a story about God's sovereignty. 
in keeping Paul alive so that Paul would get to Rome, but also in, in our responsibility and what Paul does in response to some insider information he gets about um, Jews that are wanting to kill him. And so I just want to talk about that briefly for the next uh, few minutes in three points. And, and, and of course, that's why I, br- I bring up the, um, the book by Dr. Kelly, If God Already Knows Why I Pray, because I think functionally a lot of us think that, look, if God is sovereign, I'm really not responsible for what I do. We wouldn't say that out loud, but that's just a sort of broken down version of If God Already Knows Why I Pray. Because the Bible clearly tells us to pray, but then we deduce, hey, look, uh, God's totally sovereign and it won't matter. Well, that's false. Um, God is sovereign and God calls us to do things, to say things. And so, uh, and to use what he's given us to steward, our intelligence, our connections, our words, our wealth, everything. So, and and Paul gets that and we see that, we see that here. And and so in short, what, uh, three points, the first point is God's sovereignty provides for human responsibility. God's sovereignty provides for human responsibility. And, and, And I, I, Glean that from the text because Paul is being held in Jerusalem as he's, as has been prophesied that he would, and he goes in full knowledge of that to Jerusalem and is, and is promptly arrested unfairly, always unfairly, right? But unfairly with false charges, but he's arrested and he's under guard and, um, he's going to be transferred to go before a Jewish council and his, so his nephew, his sister is married and his sister's son, so Paul's nephew, we don't know anything else about him. It's pretty one commentator said it's so tantalizing. We want to know more, but we don't get more. That's fine. But the fact, the historical fact that Luke does give us is this nephew somehow gets wind of the fact that there's 40 men of these Jews have taken a vow that they won't eat or drink until Paul is until they kill Paul. So they're going to be hiding in route to Paul's transfer to the council and they're going to kill Paul. And presumably resume eating after that point. Well, the the uh, the plan is foiled, which makes one wonder if, uh, as my mom said during our house church time, if if these men actually kept their word and starved themselves to death because <laughs> they never got to kill them. So did they? Did they actually stop eating? Um, one kind of hopes so. That's that's a nasty thing to say, but um, so the plan is foiled because this, the nephew gets wind of it. And he brings that word to Paul because Paul can receive visitors. And Paul, here, here's what here's what I, here's what I'm getting all this from this text. Um, if God already knows why, pray. Uh, God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility; it provides for it. Because Paul, what Paul, do, what does Paul not do? Paul believes that God is completely sovereign. And we know just before this, in I think it's verse 11, the verse before this text, Acts 23:11, says that Jesus has stood. He visits Paul in prison. And he stands right next to him. And he and he encourages Paul. He says, take courage. You must, just as you preach the gospel in Jerusalem, you must also preach it in Rome. It's a uh, it's a verb of compulsion. It's going to happen in, in the Greek. Um, it, it is necessary. You must or it, literally, you, it is ne- just as you preach the gospel in Jerusalem. It is necessary. You will. It's going to happen. It has been determined. You will preach the gospel in Rome. So be encouraged. I'm going to get you there. Now, so that is God's total sovereignty on display. Hey, Rome may be arrayed against you. Actually, Rome comes to Paul's defense 
and through its legal channels, defends him against the, the vicious Jews time and time again in the book of Acts. Um, and, and her legal system, Rome's legal system was the wonder of the world. Greek, Greek, the Greeks were kind of famous for their art and their culture and their philosophy and their poetry. The Romans were famous for their, um, their, their armies and their law. And we see that on display in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, although miscarriage of justice in the Gospels. But even so. Um, so here, even if all of Rome and all of the Jews and all of the world is arrayed against Paul, which sometimes it seems like it is, Jesus says, no matter, I'm going to get you to Rome. Because in transit and there, I want you to preach the good news of the fact that I've come to free mankind from her sins, from Satan, from hell. From death itself. So I'm alive forevermore. So Paul is burning with this message and he has the confidence now. Hey, I'm going to get there. Now, here's my point. Does he therefore extrapolate from that what we often do when we say, if God already knows why pray? No. He doesn't say to his nephew, hey, it's fine, nephew. They're crouching, waiting to kill me. But Jesus just last night stood with me in the cell and told me, I'm okay, I'm gonna make it to Rome, so we're good. He doesn't do that. He does not do that. He does not say, God's sovereign, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. He, here's the thing, he knows that God uses means to affect his will, to bring about his will. God uses secondary, he often uses secondary means to bring about his sovereign will. So if we know, here's the point, the take home point for this whole sermon. If we know God's sovereign will, he desires that all nations should come to know him, people from every nation, tribe, and, and tongue. The answer is not, okay, therefore he's going to do it. He doesn't need our help. That was some one person, the father of modern missions is um, William Carey. He left, I think he was a cobbler and worked on shoes. And he left the security of Great Britain in the 18th century to go to India. And he spent his whole life there. And it's an amazing, amazing, amazing story. Just a little I know about it. Uh, Father of Modern Missions, William Carey. Did so much good in his lifetime. And then, of course, the ripple effect since then. I mean, literally opened up the door to to, to the missions that we've done for the past 250 years in the West. And, well, not just in the West, right? All, all around the world. Um, tremendous impact. He was He was sort of rattling the saber, as it were, and sounding the, the call at a church in Great Britain, uh, a reformed church, no doubt, um, to, to missions, to go spread the gospel to the heathen around the world. And a man stood up and said, young man, God is fully capable of reaching the heathen in his own, uh, in his own time, in his own way, sit down. And uh, that was a perfect display of the misunderstanding, if God already knows why I pray. Uh, not... Biblical, not Pauline at all. Um, no, God wants the heathen to be reached. Therefore, we should accomplish his revealed will. We should be part of that accomplishment and go do it. Uh, our, we should know that our prayers are things that God uses to bring about his revealed will, to accomplish his will. He cares about the poor. Okay, well, he's going to care for them. No, he's going to, he wants to use us. We should therefore care for the poor. And on and on it goes. We could, we could just go on and on and on in our application. I think this is a huge misunderstanding in the church. So what does Paul do? He doesn't say, hey, nephew, cool it. Thanks for coming to talk to me, but it's going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. No, he 
knowing that he's going to be, that God's going to get him to Rome, takes every precaution. It says, okay, well, this is, I mean, what he's basically saying is this is part of God's way of getting me to Rome. My nephew found, somehow found this out. God's using this. So I'm going to, I'm going to use my brain and use my connections and be smart about this. And he sends his nephew on to tell the tribune. The tribune gets a big guard together and they guard Paul and take him down to the governor, Felix, in Caesarea, which is where we find Paul really for the next two years as he's held there. So Paul does everything he can uh, to to accomplish the word that Jesus has given him in that prison cell that you'll get to Rome. Everything he can. And we see this again in a few chapters when he's shipwrecked toward the end of the book. And um, he doesn't just say, float around and say, or not care about the fact that ship's being broken up or the storm. Hey, we're going to be fine. No, no, he does everything he can. He's totally confident that he's going to get to Rome, but he does everything he can uh, to make sure that he lives, that the prisoners live, that they get on the island, and so they do. And so this is just a huge, huge lesson for us, and I think it can really it could change our lives. Um, it's given in a nutshell. So God's sovereignty allows for. It doesn't negate our responsibility. It allows for our responsibility and for our freedom. The, the two are not... The two are not at odds. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, how would you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or man's freedom? And Charles Spurgeon said, I wouldn't. I don't reconcile friends. God's complete control of all things, which he does have, and man's freedom and responsibility are friends. God's sovereignty allows for our freedom. Um, a verse that puts this really succinctly is Luke twenty-two twenty-two. It's an easy reference to remember. Luke twenty-two twenty-two. For the Son of Man, Jesus says this, he says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He's, he's talking about the cross. It's the whole reason he came. It's the only thing that, it's, the, it's what unlocks, what cuts the Gordian knot. It's what unlocks all of, we see this in, in Revelation chapter 5. It's what unlocks God's plan for the rest of time and space, for all creation. God's, uh, is that Jesus goes to the cross and he becomes a sin bearer for sinful mankind. Who, look, who looks to him and is saved because he is their substitute and their representative. Um, and, and, then he's, and then he's raised as, as the author of a new humanity, as the, as the first fruit of a new human, a new type of human. Um, so it's God's plan for everything. It has to happen. And I think you can't put God's sovereignty more strongly. It's, it's Jesus, the reason Jesus came, it's his mission. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Okay, it's going to happen. But... Rest of the verse, woe to that man. Woe means cursed. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He's talking about Judas. It's a a bone-chilling verse. In other words, he's cursed. In other words, he's saying, just because it has been written and it must happen that I have to go to the cross, don't think that in helping me along, in helping me get to the cross, in betraying me, you're off the hook. Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean... You're off the hook and betraying me. You are guilty. You're responsible. You were free to make that choice, Judas, and you did. Um, and he's forecasting what Judas is going to do. Okay. Um, okay. So again, I mean, this affects our prayer life. This affects the way that we share the gospel. How often and to whom. Um, it's up to God. Only God can save, but we are the ones called to share. And with and how is like Paul says in Romans ten. How will anyone hear if we don't share? We are the main mechanism that God has chosen. Let's not rely on 
people having dreams or just getting it somehow or having a Bible. No, we are the main mechanism God has chosen for people to know the good news of Jesus Christ and the only way to be saved. And that is, that is how God's sovereign will for the evangelization of the nations will occur and your neighbors and your coworkers. So don't let that be a weight on you. Let that be a, a profound and sober reality that, that gives you great hope and great zeal and a great sense of responsibility. For your sanctification, you know, hey, God's going to sanctify me. Um, he's going to complete the work that he started so I can just sit back. No. Paul says, therefore, I run because God is sovereign and he's got me and he's faithful even when I'm unfaithful. I'm going to run harder than anyone. I'm going to make better use than anyone of what he's given me to make sure that my sanctification, that I'm, that I'm elect and that I'm being sanctified, that I'm being purified, that I'm being made like Jesus because he's my prize and he's my goal. And so I'm going to work harder than anyone. I'm going to work out the salvation with fear and trembling that's been worked into me, Philippians chapter 2. Um, again, caring for the poor, doing justice. God cares desperately about justice. Is he just, therefore, are we off the hook? No, he's going to, he wants to use us because we know that's his sovereign will and his heart's desire. We ought to be the ultimate doers of justice. Um, cultivating your relationship with him, investing in others that he's placed in your life. All of these things and so many more fall into this category. Because he's sovereign, we're responsible. Secondly, um, God's sovereignty should embolden us in our mission to share the gospel. And I just kind of touched on that here. Um, you know, again, how encouraged do you think Paul was by Jesus' words to him in that cell in Acts 23.11 about how it was necessary for him to testify in Rome? Do you think that that might have just given him a sense of mission and zeal in sharing the gospel on his journey from Jerusalem to Rome? Um, hey, Paul, I'm Jesus speaking. Paul, uh, it, just as you've been proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem and around the Mediterranean Rim, I'm expanding a bit, right? Just as that was my will, and I'm so pleased with the fact that you've been doing that and I saved you for myself, but also for that purpose, the Gentile world might know the, the, glor my, the glorious good news of my life and death and resurrection. So it is necessary for you to go do the same thing in Rome. I mean, to give to that, think about that kind of purpose and importance that that must have imbued Paul with. I mean, Jesus is saying that you can directly transfer that to you and to me. He is saying that to us. You must, you must, it is necessary for you to, to, Share the gospel with, to proclaim the gospel to those that I put in your life, your coworkers, um, shop owners, people that you are in contact with daily, your neighbors, your family. I have put you there for a reason. It is necessary for you. I have you living and breathing and with those connections and resources that I've given you for that purpose, it is necessary. We can directly transfer what Jesus says to Paul to us. Okay, so secondly, God's sovereignty should embolden us in our mission to share the gospel, not make us sit back and go, okay, he's going to do it. No, he's going to do it through us. So the pressure's off you in that it's, uh, he's going to do it. It's not, the result isn't up to you. But it is necessary. He has placed you with uh, who he's placed you with so that they might hear the good news of Jesus Christ from your lips and in the way that you live and love them, right? 
And part of that way is going to be in the way that you endure rejection. As you preach Christ, you're going to be rejected. That's a badge of honor. Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Jump for joy, Jesus says. Jump for joy when you're rejected for my sake, when you're persecuted for my sake. And the worst most of us, I was going to say, are going to get, have gotten in the past. We may get worse moving forward in the West, but things are looking grimmer and grimmer. But uh, it's a badge of honor to be persecuted because we are preaching Christ and living as Christians in the world. Um, and it shows that we're connected to him and we are able to suffer just a t- in a teeny tiny way, uh, get a taste of what he tasted. And that's sharing in his sufferings, the fellowship, part of what Paul talks about in Philippians 3, the fellowship of his suffering. You, you sense that fellowship in a richer and sweeter way when you suffer for him. It draws you nearer to him and makes you love him and appreciate him more. And he stands with us just as he stood with Paul in our witness. So thirdly, God's sovereignty doesn't excuse us from suffering. You know, I mean, again, can't have sovereignty more clearly expressed than in Acts 23:11, when Jesus stands with Paul in that cell and says, you're going to go to Rome, mark it, book it, mark it down. It's the gospel truth. You're going to get there. No one's going to kill you. I'm going to make sure of that. Um, you might falsely extrapolate from that. Okay, well then, uh, it's going to be, he's going to take, he's going to take care, yes, he's going to take care of Paul, but he's going to take care of me, and that means I'm not going to suffer. False. I mean, false. Paul's whole journey to Rome is one of suffering. I mean, that's the journey that he chooses for us a lot of times because Hebrews 12, what? It sanctifies us. He uses it to knock off all sorts of burrs uh, on us and hard edges that are flat, that are flesh and that are not spiritual and that are not, that don't resemble him and are not fruitful and they don't um, look like him and his son Jesus. And a lot of that just has to be done through his applying pain and turning up the the heat. I was explaining a furnace to my daughters just yesterday, but here turning up the heat in the furnace, you know, all the, we were listening to the old hymn. Like I can't even remember exactly how it goes now, but um, let's see. He, Fame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy droves to consume and thy gold to refine. So I was explaining that to them. What do you, you know, what is a, I'm, look, it's not going to hurt you being in the furnace. I only design, I only desire to, in turning up the heat in your life and applying pain, to destroy the droves and to refine you. And I, I had to explain to them how. Gold is, it's got impurities in it. And so, but when you turn up the heat on the gold, the gold isn't destroyed, but everything that's not the gold is the droves. And that's, of course, the forge of the furnace is it's a wonderful picture that's used over and over in scripture of us and um, of our lives and how Paul, how God uses pain to, to make us more like Jesus. And, um, you know, uh, I said, I said God's sovereignty couldn't be better better, more clearly expressed than it is by Jesus to Paul, but it's best expressed, you know, in Jesus' life, obviously. Even the Son of Man, who was without sin, was put through the ringer. Yes, of course, to carry our pain and sorrow and to bear the punishment that we deserve as our substitute, but also to to show the way, the way of the cross, the way that he has called us to until he returns, until we go to see him face to face. It's a way of, it's a way of pain. It's a way in this broken world. And we as sinners, um, have, have to tread 
but he he in his sovereignty and because of the cross and his resurrection he uses it to to purify us um so far from excusing us from suffering god's sovereignty does not excuse us from suffering but actually he's going to use it to accomplish his sovereign will but that's really 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 encourage us and help us to know look i don't have to defend myself i don't have to worry i just need to follow him obey him be good at repenting asking for forgiveness um surrendering trusting him following him um So let me finish, I suppose, with with a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's toward the beginning. It's on the first page of a sermon that he that he preached at the end of 1941 when things were looking rather dreadful. The United States had just formally come into the war. Britain was alone for over a year, uh, stood alone against the Axis powers, Nazis, etc., as they had the hell bombed out of them in London and elsewhere. And uh, right a few days after December 7th, after America came into the war, Lewis preached this sermon at St. Mary's. I think it was a few days. It was definitely December, a few days after. So in, in, a, in a time of great darkness, he talks about the fact that, look, I just want to leave you with an up. What I'm saying here to you, friends, is that I just want to leave you with, it's not, it's not about the suffering. For fall, it wasn't about the change. It was about this glorious hope of the resurrection and being with the resurrected Christ now, but then face to face one day when he's going to remake all things. Um, so the privation and the suffering is not the, that's not the end. That's just a means that God uses to get us to something that's, he's creating in us a weight of glory. That's going to be, it's going to take our breath away. Um, so that's the title of the sermon, the weight of glory. And, and uh, I'll quote Lewis now in closing. He says, the new Testament has lots to say about self-denial but not about self-denials and end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in, Lewis says, from Kant, Immanuel Kant, and the Stoics philosophers and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, like he promises the meek shall inherit what? The earth. You shall rule with me. I mean, these are massive promises. We, we have the inheritance of sons that Christ has. It's going to be ours, right? So if we consider these staggering promises and rewards, it would seem, Lewis says, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He explains, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God is sovereign, and therefore we are responsible. He's using, he is using us and our witness to accomplish his will, also to accomplish his work in us to make us more like Jesus through largely through suffering. But that's not the end. The suffering is not the end. We will see him face to face. We will be made like him as he is, and he will finish what he has started and make all things new. And we will rule and reign and romp with him in a new creation forever.
if indeed we are in him. God bless you all.